as we begin our time by reading the text that we'll be covering. That takes us from 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, through 1 John 5, verse 5. A bit longer of a passage this morning. Stick with me. There we find these words from John. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe all his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the son of God? This is the word of God. Please be seated. Even if you do not have a great deal of knowledge, the book of Proverbs, you've likely heard that proverb which says, pride comes before the fall, right? This is one of these sayings that finds its origin in scripture and yet has bled its way into mainstream culture. And so you hear many people, both believers and unbelievers alike, repeating that basic language. And oftentimes when that saying is used, it is in essence, it seems, being used as a warning against Foolish confidence. It's a warning against being overly certain about your future victory. And so that saying can be used in any basic context. As students, you are rightly told to always double-check your work, to make sure you edit it, and make sure everything looks good. Don't be so confident to assume that your first attempt is the best. In the world of sports, of course, we see this in the warning against being overly confident against any given opponent, and it's the warning that says if you assume you're going to win, well you inevitably will make a mistake. And even in our everyday lives, in our careers, in our marriage, that basic word of advice carries with it some value, some weight. For it is only natural to assume that that over-sense of confidence is itself pride. And when we are proud, when we fail to acknowledge that we could fall short, well, then we inevitably will, in fact, fall short. All of us, I think, can see the value in that proverb. All of us understand the the danger of assuming victory, of assuming confidence, and yet we come to a book like 1 John, and John is overflowing with a seemingly shocking level of confidence, isn't he? Shocking confidence. He's not just confident that he's going to turn in the right school assignment or confident that he's going to beat a certain opponent in sports. John speaks of confidence before God Almighty. He speaks of absolute certainty in terms of his standing now and his standing in the future before God. And he he speaks of complete certainty regarding his victory over the world at large. 
many of us, I think if we read this type of language outside of Scripture, would say, no, that author is far too confident. It's far too prideful, and if you are that prideful, then surely you will make a mistake along the way. You will fail. And so we must ask ourselves, is John being arrogant? Is the book of 1 John giving us bad advice? Well, as I think you can probably guess, the answer to that is no. John's certainty is far from prideful. So too is his letter far from sinful. What John reminds us yet again today in our passage is that the certainty of the believer is encouraged not because we can be confident in ourselves, Our certainty is sure because of the fact that we rely entirely upon the God who is at work in us, past, present, and future. And my prayer is that as we come to the text today and as we see so much of what John has said leading into chapters 4 and 5, we too might feel and experience that same level of confidence that John was brimming over with. Might we too enjoy that confidence and in so doing might we too be driven to a life of obedience, a life of pleasure in the Father who loved us enough to send his Son. As we look to it today then, let us begin our time in prayer and we'll begin by speaking of where our certainty lies. Bow your heads in prayer with me if you will. God, we would be foolish to place any certainty in ourselves. That is to say, we would be foolish to assume we will be successful because of talents that we have in and of ourselves. And so it is a challenge at times to read language like that found in 1 John. To read of this absolute confidence that John has of his future and to consider that he has the same confidence in our future as well. God, I pray that you protect us from pride this morning. I pray that you reveal that pride as it is in all of our hearts. I pray that we might see that our confidence lies not in ourselves, but it lies in you who will never fail us. God, if anyone is here this morning and does not know you, I pray they have their eyes open to the truth of the gospel today. I know that requires the Spirit to be at work, and so Holy Spirit, open the eyes of the lost this morning. Bring them to that point of saving faith. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, might this be a morning of great encouragement as we stand in the glory of the gospel. We love you, God. And we love the fact that your love for us is 100% certain, God. We find solace in that truth today. We pray all these things in your precious Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As we begin our discussion on the certainty we have as believers, we begin with this look of our certainty specifically in our present standing before God. That is to say, certainty in our salvation. And we see that certainty clearly on display in verses 13 through 16. And so again, follow along with me as I read there. John there says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he's given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Try reading those verses as fast as you can, and it's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? John repeatedly is saying, we abide in God, God abides in us. We do this and we abide in God, God does this and God abides in us. Time and time again, John is reminding us of the tests of assurance. And if you're not careful as you read these verses, you might easily misunderstand what John is teaching. 
For if you jump over, specifically verse 13, you might assume that your certainty and salvation lies in how effectively you can communicate the truth. Or you might assume that your certainty and your ability to abide in God rest in your ability and your success in loving as God has loved you. But that's not what John is saying. Now, if you look back at verse 13, you see the source of our certainty is never ourselves. It is always God, specifically the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Look there again at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Believer, this is the source always of your certainty and salvation. You can know that you are saved because the Holy Spirit indwells you. This is not the first time John has spoken this truth. Back in chapter 3, verse 24, he said basically the exact same thing. There he said, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Again, it's easy to assume that our assurance comes from our obedience, but ultimately it rests on something much deeper, much more reliant. It rests on the spirit. John understands this to be true, not simply because he's experienced it, but because Jesus himself promised that the Holy Spirit would play this role. Look back with, you, with me, if you will, back to John 14, a chapter that it seems we've read or referenced every single week in 1 John. It's almost as if John is basing his teaching off the teachings of Christ. And there in John 14, you see the same promise. Jesus speaking to the disciples in verses, one through, or verses 16 through 17 speaks this of the, of the Spirit. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Again, the source of the disciples' encouragement and certainty was not in their obedience. It was not in their knowledge. It came ultimately from the Spirit who gave them that knowledge, who gave them new life, who gave them salvation. The Spirit was always intended to be our means of encouragement. And as we look back at 1 John chapter 4, we see that the results of that Spirit's indwelling can be seen both in the knowledge we have of the truth as well as the love that we experience and that we put into practice. We see that resulting knowledge that the Holy Spirit allows us to understand immediately in verses 14 and 15. Speaking once again of that knowledge, John says, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Throughout much of our recent weeks in 1 John, our focus has been primarily on the love of God and understanding of the love of God. But John wants us to understand that the doctrine never takes a backseat to love. That doctrine is still essential. And speaking of the foundational doctrines of Scripture, he reminds us of two things that we know for certain. Those things being the nature of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. As John has stated before, he says yet again regarding the nature of Jesus. There in verse 14 and 15, we're reminded that, that Jesus is the one that has been sent by the Father. Even more so in verse 15, we're reminded that Jesus is the Son of God. This once again is speaking to the fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Yet again, it's worth repeating that the false teachers that were attempting to deceive the believers in John's day, those individuals that had left the faith, were attempting to divide that humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ. They were attempting to deny that humanity in essence. 
And so repeatedly, John is saying, no. No, he is fully God, fully man. That is the real Jesus. And if you're a believer, you know that to be true. If you're sitting here this morning and you claim to be a believer, I trust you understand those basic truths. You understand that the real Jesus, the Jesus of history, the Jesus as revealed to us in Scripture, is that one sent by God, the unique Son of God, who came both fully God and fully man, the one who offered up his life as an act of atonement for our sins. He is the one who saves us, and we understand that we must believe those basic doctrines regarding who he is. As I mentioned already, we also see in that statement that mission, that reason why Jesus came. Again, looking at verse 13, the basic message that John preaches is this. Verse 14, rather, we have seen and testify the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, if you've spent much time in church, that mission probably doesn't really do anything for you in terms of surprise you. You've heard this language before, Jesus came to save us. But if you take a step back and try to appreciate that message from the mindset of a person who has no understanding of the gospel, you quickly understand why that mission is so incredibly offensive. For if you say that the mission of Jesus is to save you from your sins, what are you saying about yourself and about the world? That you need saving. That you are a sinner who cannot help themselves. And as we saw earlier in 1 John chapter 1, this went completely against the message of these false teachers. For we saw in the first chapter of 1 John that these false teachers were denying the reality of sin. They were denying the fact that they continued to fall short. And so in their minds, there was no need of a blood sacrifice. How gruesome, how grotesque. No, they, they denied the reality of sin. And so to say that Jesus saves the world by that blood atonement was to say something that went against that basic belief system that surrounded them. We too continue to live in a culture today in a world that, that understandably finds this mission offensive, do we not? Again, people are fine speaking about the love of God. They're fine speaking about Jesus being a good example for us to follow. But start telling them that, that the reason why Jesus came was to be nailed to a cross. That he had to be brutally executed. And the reason why he had to be brutally executed was because of you. Because of your failure. Because that is how offensive your sin is in the eyes of God. That is horrifically offensive in our culture. And I think if we're honest, even in our own lives, we fail to appreciate at times just the, the grittiness of that mission. For while we are quick, no doubt, to recognize the sin of the world around us, many of us are still somewhat uncomfortable in dealing with our own personal sin and the reality that it still plays in our lives. We can look at the world and say, oh, they need Jesus, but oftentimes we forget, no, we need Jesus just as much. We're just as shameful as the rest of them. Apart from Christ, we are just as wicked, just as awful, just as depraved as every single other person in this world. We must remember that like Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1.15, we ought to be able to say about ourselves that we are the chief of sinners. Paul speaks those famous words. Again, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, as he 
summarizes this mission of Christ when he says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. The Apostle Paul, great hero of the faith, man who wrote the majority of our New Testament letters is able to look at himself and acknowledge I'm least deserving of the grace of God. I'm the worst of sinners. And while it is certainly true that Paul was guilty of a number of atrocious sins, brothers and sisters in Christ, all of our records are filthy. All of our records are full of shameful deeds. Do we know that? Do we recognize that it's because of our sin that Jesus needed to come to die on the cross? Well, again, if you're a believer, I trust you do know that. But I hope and I also trust that you understand the only reason why you know that, the only reason why you know you're a sinner, the only reason why you know Jesus is fully God and fully man is because the Spirit allows you to understand that. That's it. You didn't figure it out on your own. You weren't so smart that you suddenly came to the realization, you know what? I think that Jesus might have been right. Fully God and fully man, that makes sense. Yeah. I get it. I worked through all the logical premises. No, no. No, you know it entirely because the Spirit opens your eyes and allows you to see. He opens your ears, allows you to hear. He gives you a new heart to allow you to believe and gives you life. Again, the Apostle Paul speaks of this reality in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where he says the gospel is foolishness. It's an offense to everyone else except to us. 1 Corinthians 2, he speaks of the fact that natural man cannot understand the things of God. It requires the Spirit to open our eyes to that truth. And so because of the Spirit's work, we who are believers are able to understand for the first time. We're able to see the truth of the nature of Jesus Christ and we're able to see the truth of his mission as well and we're able to embrace it, not as foolishness, not as grotesque, but as beautiful, as lovely, as worthy of all praise and honor. And as such, not only are our minds open, but as we saw already in verses 15 and 16, our hearts are open as well. For the Spirit does not just produce knowledge, it produces this love, this divine love within us. Look there again at verse 16. There John says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Again, John returns to this theme of love, that theme which he has harped on week in and week out. And as believers, we understand that the greatest act of love is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We see that cross not as grotesque, but as lovely, as beautiful. Not only are we able to understand that mentally, intellectually, but our hearts are warmed by it. We have experienced that love of God that has saved us. As we experience that love, as we taste and see the goodness of God, we have both that, that objective knowledge and that subjective experience that come together, both of which are essential to our assurance, both of which are gifts of the Spirit. And so if you are here this morning, brothers and sisters, and you are able to say in confidence that it is a trustworthy statement that Jesus came to die for sinners amongst whom you are foremost sinners. 
If you were to say in all honesty that you believe this truth of Jesus Christ's nature of his mission, if you're able to speak of the experience you've had of the love of God, you do so as a result of the Spirit's miraculous work within you. Oftentimes when we think of the Spirit's miraculous power, we limit it to, to some miraculous sign in a book like Acts. We think of something like speaking in tongues or miraculous healings, and we think, oh wow, what, what a clear manifestation of the work of God. But an equally glorious and equally miraculous work of the Spirit happens every single time a sinner comes to faith. For in that moment, the dead are raised to life. In that moment, a blind person is able to see. In that moment, a mute person is able to speak. In that moment, we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And there's no way you can accomplish that on your own. It's entirely a work of the Spirit. And so as we profess this truth, as we speak of that love, we perhaps even unknowingly are speaking of our own confidence and assurance and we're able to say, I am saved in this moment. And I pray you are able to say that in this moment, that you are in Christ. And I pray you're able to rejoice in the work of the Spirit in this moment. But even if you are confident in this moment, even if you are able to say with certainty, yes, before God, now I stand as his child, what about the future? It's one thing to be confident about where you are before God now, but what about 10 years from now? What about 20 years from now? What about the final day of judgment? Isn't it a little arrogant to be certain of that future? Well, no. Not at all. Because not only are we confident in our salvation at the moment, we are also confident, we are certain of that ongoing love that God has for us. We see this in our next chunk of verses, verses 17 through 21, although as we begin, we'll just read those first few. Pick it up with me again and. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. There John writes, By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. It's important to pause here. For this statement that states that there is no fear in love is astonishing. Isn't it? Can you think of something less predictable in this world than love? Love is a feeling. It is fleeting. How can you possibly think that you can be 100% confident in the ongoing perfect love of God? Who are you to make such a bold claim? As John speaks this, he taps into that natural potential for fear that is within all of us. For as he has spoken before earlier in 1 John chapter 2, he yet again returns to that future day of judgment. John here is not beating around the bush. John speaks to that day which, which has the most potential for creating fear in you. That future day of judgment when we see Christ when we find out whether or not we've really made it. Again, we saw that earlier in 1 John chapter 2 at the end. In verse 28, he says, Little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. 
when left to our own devices, that future day ought to cause us to stand in terror. For if you really take a step back and start surveying your life, you naturally will have to ask yourself, whew, have I done enough? Have I done enough to be confident in that future day? Think about the last 48 hours. Think about how many times you have failed God miserably. How many times you've failed as a spouse, you've failed as a friend. How many times you've sinned outwardly, how many times you've sinned internally as you've thought bitter thoughts towards others. God sees all of that. Every single shameful act, every shameful thought that crosses our mind, God sees it. And as we consider that, how can we not ask ourselves, what, what if I haven't done enough? What if in that day of judgment, Jesus says, depart from me? I never knew you. For so many people, that idea strikes terror in their hearts. Indeed, outside of the Christian faith, that is the imagery we have of the future. An image of fear, an image of uncertainty. Uncertainty that stems from the fact that we know we haven't done enough. We know we haven't shared our faith enough. We know we haven't been a good spouse. We know we haven't done so many things. So how can John possibly say that this love is fearless? Well, incredibly, John is able to say that, and the reason for that, the reason why our love is without fear is not because we have done enough, but because Christ has done enough. It's because the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that work is sufficient to save us in that day of judgment. Again, we see this in the text. Verse 17, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. The reason, believer, why you can be confident and fearless moving forward is because you presently stand as a son or daughter of God. No one can take that identity from you. And the love of Christ, his sacrifice, has removed all shame, past, present, future. It's all cleared. It's all wiped clean. We are forever children of God. And we are therefore fearless, knowing there's no punishment that awaits us. There's no sense of purgatory. There's no weighing out our good deeds and see if they outweigh our bad deeds. There's none of that. We're welcomed in the loving arms of the Father, who loves us enough to send his Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. John understood this to be true, and he understands it again in part because he heard the same promise from Jesus Christ. At the risk of being repetitive, turn back with me again to John chapter 14. And you see this promise that Jesus made to his disciples. A promise that's made in the midst of a tumultuous moment, for he has already told the disciples he's about to leave them. Knowing that that news would cause them great discomfort, Jesus says this in John 14. Verses 1 through 3. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Notice that when Jesus speaks to his disciples, he says, hey guys, don't worry about it. I really think you can handle this. And it's a good thing, too, because the disciples were <laughs> horrible failures in so many ways, right? Even in that moment, they're so confused by what Jesus is saying. But Jesus doesn't say, okay, guys, I'm going to go away and try your best not to mess things up while I'm gone. 
because I'd really like to come back for you, but mm, if you fall short, well, that's that. That's not the promise of Jesus. No, Jesus is able to look at these fallen disciples, and he's able to tell them with 100 absolute certainty that I'm going to prepare a place for you. When I come back, I'll take you. I'm coming back to get you. If we're not so, I would not make this promise. Time and time again, God makes this promise to his people, to his children. And he does so not based off of whether or not we do enough, but based off of the finished work of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And so the reason why we can be 100% certain of our present standing before God as well as our future standing before God is because we can be 100% certain in the love of God. A love in which there's no fear of punishment. Now, it's important to note, of course, that this is not to say that God does not discipline those whom he loves, for we understand that to be true as well. Hebrews makes this clear, that as we fall into sin as believers, God will hand us consequences, God will discipline us as he brings us out, and so there is that proper reverence for God and appreciation of the fact that God still keeps us on the path. We must also remember, again, that this is not a word to, draw, to drive us forward in sin. No, we still serve a loving but righteous and holy and pure God. But all this is intended to remove that, that fear of future punishment. That fear that, that really controls every other religion. Every other religion that's built off of the good works they accomplish. Good works that earn their way into heaven. In Christianity, that's not the case. Our entrance into heaven is guaranteed, not because we will ourselves that moment, but because God lovingly will deliver us by his good and gracious hand. This is the love we have of God. Believer, do you, do you see that? Do you see the certainty of the fact that God loves you? Regardless of how far you fell short, this last week, as we mentioned even last Sunday, God still loves you. And God will deliver you from this world into his eternal home. It's a beautiful thought. And it's not intended to be some carrot dangled out before us on a string. It is that which drives us forward daily. It is our promise. And as a result of that promise, we then are able to carry that love into verses 20 and 21 where we see or rather, 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Yet again, we see that our certainty in love and even our practice in love does not stem from our own natural ability. It comes as a result of the fact that you were first loved from God, by God. And if you've experienced that love of verse 19, you will naturally love those around you. Namely, you will naturally love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If you've been with us at all during the study, these verses should not come as a shock to you. For John's kind of saying the same thing over and over, isn't he? Time and time again, he's told us this is the commandment that God's given us. Time and time again, he's told us this is the standard by which you are marked. Just as Jesus said, by this the world will know you, by your love for one another. And these verses, he puts a slightly different spin on it. For he does not simply remind us it's a command, but he also reminds us of the basic logic behind this. 
For in verse 20, again, he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Not only is it a commandment, it, it makes no sense to fail to love those around you. For if you claim you've experienced the love of God, if you claim that you understand that you are a wretched sinner deserving nothing but hell, and yet God plucked you out of the fire, God gave you a new heart, God gave you a new life, he did it all out of his love, then you will certainly respond by not just loving him, but loving others who have also experienced that same love. To fail to do this reveals that you don't actually understand the love of God. It's the same thing Jesus taught in his parables regarding forgiveness and love as well, isn't it? In that parable of the unforgiving servant. That is the message that Jesus preaches. That if you fail to forgive other people, you reflect the fact that you've never actually been forgiven. For if you've been forgiven, then your heart will naturally cause you to be forgiving to other people. In the same way here in 1 John, if you are unloving, particularly towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, it proves you actually have no idea who God is at all. It proves you've just made up your own idol, your own false God, and you're following after him. But your heart's not been renewed. As believers, we know the truth of the gospel because the spirit who is at work in us. As believers, we know and we experience the love of God and we love in turn because the Spirit's awakened our heart and because he's given us that ability to love where at one point in time we were only selfish. And so as believers, as we consider our present moment and as we consider that future day of judgment, we are able to say with certainty, I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ now and I will be in Christ on the day of judgment. It's a beautiful statement. Quite encouraging. But still the question exists of, well, that's all well and good. It's great to be confident now, and boy, I can't wait to get to heaven. But what about now, John? How can we be confident in our daily life, John? The world hates us, John. How can we be certain of anything in the days leading up to our final salvation? Well, it is an answer to that question that we find our final point of certainty in verses 1 through 5 of 1 John 5. Where we see we are not just certain of our salvation, we are not just certain of God's love, we are certain in our daily victory over the world at large. Follow along with me again, 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know the love the children by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. At this point in time, it's worth noting that that John is really starting to bring his letter to a close. And so you will no doubt see much of what John is saying here really is a summary of everything he's argued for the first four chapters. From the beginning, as I have mentioned, John has given us really three tests of assurance. Those tests being belief or doctrine, something we've hit on a little bit today. Those tests being of morality or obedience. 
And ultimately, thirdly, that test of love. Throughout much of the letter, he's divvied these tests apart. And in chapter 3, he spoke primarily of the idea of love and obedience. In chapter 4, as you perhaps picked up, he spoke primarily of love and belief. How those two things are tied together. As we come to chapter 5, he finally brings all three tests back together again. And as he does so, he shows that these tests are not arbitrary. These are not points of faith that he's thought up of as, as a good summary. No, these are all closely interwoven with each other. And they form this unbroken chain of faith, this chain that is unbreakable, even by the world that continually hurls insults and hurls attacks against the Christian faith. And so we see how belief and love and love and obedience and obedience and victory go together around and around and around again. It begins unsurprisingly with that connection between belief and love in verse 1. Where once again we read, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him again. We come to Christ because we for the first time understand the truth of the doctrine of Christ. For the first time, that light bulb goes off in our mind and we see, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That Savior is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man and he has given his life up for me and in his resurrection, we are given new life. As soon as we believe that truth, we are brought into this new loving relationship with the Father. And so just as a newborn babe naturally loves its mother from which it just came, from whom she just came, so too we who have been begotten by the Father naturally look with eyes aglow at our Father. And we love Him, for we see Him as our loving parent. But our love does not stop in those first moments of new birth. No, that love then carries into a love of obedience. Yet again, verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And so here we see this second and third link of the chain built together. We see how that, that doctrine that builds into love is then built directly into obedience. We've seen in this text, just as we've seen throughout 1 John, that obedience is characterized in part by an obedience to love other people. But, but in these verses, John reminds us that that is not the end of our obedience for there are many other commands, of course. And if we are truly in love with Christ, if we truly love God, then we will demonstrate that by following his commands. This is not a concept that we think of naturally in our own culture, that idea that love equals obedience. But again, Jesus Christ spoke this exact truth time and time again, did he not? Turn with me, if you will, this time back to Matthew. Change it up a little and not go to John 14. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. You see this invitation of Jesus Christ. An invitation that speaks both of love and obedience. There he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. There we see that invitation that Christ gives, but it's an invitation of service, of obedience. Elsewhere, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is evidence of the fact that we understand the truth. And as Jesus says there in Matthew, and as John repeats here in 1 John 5, this obedience is by no means burdensome. 
Why? Why would this obedience suddenly not be burdensome? Well, because the Spirit's given you new affections. Because the Spirit causes you to love serving Christ. And so unlike these other religions in which obedience is, is a daily chore that they have to do to earn their way into heaven, no, in, in Christianity, our daily obedience is a pleasure. For we suddenly see what we were designed to accomplish, and so we accomplish it with joy, knowing this will bring us our greatest fulfillment knowing this will bring God the glory he deserves. And so yet again, we see this unbroken chain that begins with belief that's then hooked into love, and that love is then hooked into obedience. And in that daily obedience, we come again to that grand conclusion in verses 4 through 5, where John says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Here we see that that circle complete. For we started with belief, that that belief transitions into love, that love transitions into obedience, and that obedience is then connected back to belief in Jesus Christ. And in that unbroken circle, we see that which John says will daily, ultimately overcome the entire world that is against us. What a statement John makes. For yet again, consider the world in which he lived. The Roman Empire. An empire that looked unstoppable. An empire that despised Christianity. And yet an empire that toppled. An empire in which the Christian faith exploded and grew. An empire that is now a subject for ancient history. And a faith that continues to live on daily. John knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that his faith would remain. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he could be certain of his salvation, of his ultimate deliverance in the judgment, and in his daily victory, not because John thought himself to be impressive, And not because the the community that John writes to was impressive, far from it. For God has not chosen many who are wise, he doesn't choose us because we're impressive, but God has chosen the weak so that his strength can be manifested. God has chosen the foolish of the world so that his wisdom can be put on display. God has chosen us who by nature are loveless, selfish creatures so that as we love, His glory is seen throughout all the world. John is certain of his victory. Brothers and sisters, we are certain of our victory because we are entirely dependent upon the one who is eternally victorious. And it's in that that we rest. It's in that that we are certain. It's in that that we can daily find our motivation to serve him, knowing that his will is always accomplished. And so as we close today, as we consider this, let us remember yet again, this is where our certainty lies. Let us rejoice in that fact. Unbeliever, you live in a world that is so harsh and unforgiving. You live in a world that is waiting for you to make a mistake and a world that will never forgive you for that mistake. God forbid you tweet anything that offends someone 20 years down the line. God forbid you ever fall short of the daily changing requirements that are placed upon you because the second you do, this world will throw you into the trash bin. 
and will say, you are unworthy of our acceptance. I cannot fathom living with that weight on my shoulders daily. can't imagine it. But unbeliever, please understand that is not the expectation that God has placed. God knows not only that you, God knows that not only have you said offensive things, but you will continue to do far worse. And yet God offers you eternal salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And so unbeliever, believe in Jesus Christ. Place your faith in the son of God. In so doing, find 100% certainty that you will rest not, even in, not just in this moment, but for all eternity in his love that is unending and will never run short. I pray you do that this morning, and as I say in your lay of a week, if you have any questions, please let me know. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, are you certain of your salvation? How certain are you? If we're honest, I think many of us would admit that we struggle with this. As much as we love the idea of love being fearless, quite frankly, a lot of us are fearful. But so oftentimes we are fearful because, again, we are trying to rest in our own accomplishments. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, our encouragement is not to look at the work we've accomplished, but to see the Spirit's work. To see the miracle that is your new birth. Our encouragement, believer, is to rejoice not in our own work, but in the finished work of Christ. And our encouragement, believers, is to persevere, not because you are good enough, not because you are strong enough, because it is God who is at work within you. And when it is the God of all creation who is at work within you, you know that he will continue to perfect his calling in you for all eternity. And you can stand 100% certain of your salvation, of his love, and of our ultimate victory. Here in a moment, we'll have an opportunity to be reminded of that victory. Here in a moment, as band plays song, we'll have the opportunity to come forward and take part of the reminder of where our eternal souls rest. If you're here and an unbeliever, I pray that, or I ask that you not take part in communion. For communion is the act of a believer to take this juice and bread, which are pictures of the blood and body of Jesus Christ, hung on the cross for our benefit. And so instead of taking part of that unbeliever, I ask that you just stay seated, that you consider the offer of the gospel, that you pray for salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins. But for my brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that this table is a reminder of where our certainty lies. That this table is a reminder that God saves us not on the basis of our, basis of our works, but on the basis of Christ's perfect sacrifice and the atonement offered to us. And I pray that in this offering, we might be renewed in that confidence, that we might see this is how much God loves us, and this is why we are going to make it into heaven. And so let this be a time of encouragement to us, a time of refreshment, and a time of great communion as fellow saints. As we prepare for that, let me close this in prayer. Father and God, Father, we are undeserving of your love. We deserve only your wrath. We deserve to burn in hell for all eternity. And yet, God, you sent your son to die on the cross on our behalf. Jesus Christ, you took the punishment of the sins that we gladly commit 
then you took that punishment upon yourself. And as a result of that atoning sacrifice, we are saved. And so I thank you, Father. We praise you, Jesus Christ, for that sacrifice. And we praise you, Holy Spirit, for allowing us to see it. God, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that this time of communion is a time of great encouragement. A time in which our certainty in you and your love is renewed. But God, for those unbelievers who are amongst us, God, I pray they see the offer of the gospel that is set before them. Save them from their sins, we pray, God, so that they too might enjoy the certainty that is found in the love that is only available in you, God. We love you, God, but we love you only because you first loved us, and we thank you for that love. Might we never doubt it, God. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.